Well, today, of course, is Father's Day, that day when we bring special honor to those men among us who've invested in us and helped raise us. And of course, when we say that, we're not talking about simply those people who contributed genetically or biologically to our makeup. We're talking about those people who have, who have spent the time and the tears to make some investment in us. We recognize that for some people, they're... Their, their biological parents are not the ones who raised them. They're adopted into some other family. And it is that man who becomes their father in their life very much and in a real sense. While on the other hand, uh, U.S. Census Bureau tells us that nearly one in four children are raised now in a home that doesn't have a father. There was obviously some person that, that was their uh, biological progeny uh, or contributed to their biological progeny, but it's not them as a father because they're absent from the scene. But when we say this, we're, we're talking about, we're honoring those men who have helped raise us, who have sacrificed for us, who've set the pace of life for us, who've been a model for us to follow and sheltered and cared for and fed us throughout our childhood. We're talking about those men, the ones who raised us. It's really all those wonderful images from fatherhood, which often leads the Apostle Paul to compare his own ministry to that of a father with children. When he talks about his relationship or his ministry in relationship to God, he often speaks of it as slavery. He's a slave of God. When he talks about it in relationship to the Word of God, he often speaks about it as a stewardship. He's a steward of the mysteries of God. Or when he talks about it in the, in the conduct of his preaching, he often will refer to himself as a soldier or an athlete fighting the good fight for the faith and for the truth. But in terms of those that he ministers to and those that he ministers among, one of Paul's favorite images ever was that of a father with his children. He tells the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 2, you know how like a father with his children we were among you. Or for those that he personally invested in, he would speak to people like Timothy and he would call him my beloved child or in another place my true child. Or he says to Titus, you are my true child in the common faith. He tells uh, uh, Philemon about how Onesimus became to him his child while he was a father to him during his imprisonment. In other words, he looked at those that he ministered to like children. And he like their spiritual father. This is one of his favorite images. How strange and bizarre that must sound to modern ears who are more apt to characterize their ministers like an entertainer or like an executive, or like a CEO, and they are like a father. Their relationship to their pastors, to their ministers is clinical, it is official, it is professional, it is even artificial, and increasingly, it is digital. That's how they think of the spiritual leaders in their lives. Well, Paul didn't approach his ministry that way. He didn't approach it in some artificial, detached, business-like manner. 
He dealt with those that he ministered to and thought of them and spoke of them and prayed for them as a father would his own children. Because few things encapsulate his ministry and the ministry of every true, genuine pastor than that image of a father and children. And in God's providence, that is our theme this morning as we return to our study of 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's providential on this Father's Day that we come to a passage where Paul speaks about his own ministry as a father to children. He writes to them in 1 Corinthians 4.14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He wrote this, you may remember, after a lengthy section that was full of biting sarcasm. In fact, probably some of the most sarcastic words you'll find anywhere in Scripture are found for us in verses 6 through 13 of this chapter. But it wasn't sarcasm like you encounter in your everyday life. It wasn't sarcasm that was self-centered, egotistical, arrogant. It wasn't inconsiderate of others. It wasn't malicious, and it wasn't destructive. That's what most people use, or that's how most people employ sarcasm. No, this wasn't sarcasm for any of that, but for the purpose solely of love for the purpose of shaking them out of their spiritual delusion, for the purpose of bringing them back from their spiritual pride, for the purpose of calling them back to faithfulness. And so Paul, after this extended section of sarcasm, in order to not be misunderstood, he writes to them there in verse 14, look, I'm not saying these things, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. As my beloved children. He wants to clarify what his motives are. They're not derogatory. They're conciliatory. They're loving. They're fatherly. In fact, he says, verse 15, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. I mean, the contrast is obvious. He compares himself to a a guardian, a tutor, uh, a guide, as he says here, as it says in the ESV. This is... This is basically a word that referred to slaves which were hired on by wealthy people of the day. And their, their primary duty was to conduct the child from the front doorstep of their home to the doorstep of the philosophy school, wherever they would go to study, and then to conduct them back safely home and to make sure, first of all, no one kidnapped them, but more importantly, that they not fall in with the wrong crowd that they not get distracted with all the terrible things in, in this world that could pull them away, just to make sure that they get where they go and they get back home and they stay in line. Be nice, wouldn't it? Hire somebody like that. We kind of feel the need. We always know our, our kids, we're worried about them, that they find perhaps the wrong crowd, fall into it. But the thing about these slaves is everywhere in extra-biblical literature, and even in, in the Bible itself, when you find them mentioned, it's often in association with harsh or, or trenchant behavior. These were the taskmasters. These were the people who sort of 
kept you in line with strict rules and strict and harsh discipline because their job depended on it and for them it was all about a job. And so they would beat you and there are images in extra biblical literature uh, of uh, stories about these, these slaves who would liter- literally beat the children in order to keep them in line. And Paul's saying, look, that's not who I am. I'm not one of those harsh taskmasters. That's not, my, that's not my spiritual style of leadership. That's not what a spiritual leader is. That might be a hired hand, but that's not what I am. I'm a father to you, he says. And you might have 10,000 of those guys. The word is murion, the word myriad. You can have myriads of those guys. I mean, they're a dime a dozen. You can go into churches today and you can find those kind of people. And it's all about keeping people in line, laying down the rules, laying down the harsh treatment, making sure they get to where they're supposed to go and they do what they're told to do. Paul says, that's not what I am. I'm not ministering to you out of some obligation. It's not just for a paycheck. I'm like a father to you. I take you into my heart. And I carry you around. You're the burden of my prayers. You're the burden of my life. You're the burden of my mind. I'm like a father. And he says in verse 15, you don't have many of those. Those kinds of spiritual leaders are rare. Well, it's with that that Paul launches into the one of the most emotional and stirring summaries of his relationship and his ministry to these believers that you'll find anywhere. And it basically is a comparison between being a father and being a pastor. And it shouldn't surprise us to hear such a comparison because both roles are essentially spiritual leadership. That's a connection that Paul's making here. Fatherhood is a role of spiritual leadership just as a pastor is a role of spiritual leadership. And so both of them are going to share certain common components. No one, hopefully, no one thinks about their role as a father and approaches their role as a father like some sort of corporate CEO or some sort of managerial model. If you do, call me this week. We need to talk. No one certainly, I think, thinks of their role as a, as a father as some sort of comic or some sort of stand-up entertainment. And certainly, hopefully, I should say, no one approaches their role as a father as a, some sort of flat-screen presence in the lives of their children. I mean, we all recognize how ridiculous that would be to try to parent and try to be a father that way. No, a father takes you into their heart. A father takes you into their life. A father lives among you and dwells among you and invests in you and does all the things that a father does. That's what Paul's saying here. He's drawing this connection between him and all the other false spiritual models out there, all the other tutors, all the other guardians, all the other guides. He says, you can find 10,000 of those guys, but you don't find many fathers. And that's what I am. I'm a father. And when you speak in those terms, there are elements, there are irreducible minimums that are at the core of that kind of spiritual leadership. And those are the parallels that Paul's highlighting here. You'll see them in the home, in the lives of fathers, and you ought to see them in the church, in the lives of pastors. The core components of spiritual leadership. 
Well, what are they? Let me just begin by reading this passage to you in its entirety. Paul says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you as soon. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love in a spirit of gentleness. He spells it out here. This comparison of spiritual leaderships between a father and a pastor. The core components of spiritual leadership. And what he tells us is spiritual leadership involves, first of all, godly instruction. Spiritual leadership involves godly instruction. I mean, spiritual leadership is inseparable from teaching and instruction. And particularly the kind of instruction that Paul brings out here. I mean, the whole reason that he brings up the image of spiritual fatherhood is because he had just issued this admonishment to them. And he's saying, look, the reason I'm admonishing you is because I'm a father. And this is what spiritual leaders do. They admonish, they teach. This is what the word basically means. The word nutheteo. It's made up of two words. The word nous which is the word for mine, and the word tithemi, which is the word in Greek to put. And it basically means to put someone's mind or put in someone's mind what needs to be there. And it's different from the common word didaskalain, which, you know, we get didactic from that. But that's a basic word for imparting information. This is actually implying or presupposes something that is in opposition, something that needs to be corrected. That's the difference between these two words. Something is out of line. In other words, Paul's not talking about simply educating them. Maybe there are some people who think that is their role as a father. They just get their kids educated. That's their primary duty. Get them the best education you can. But that's not the focus of the Apostle Paul. It's not the focus of any spiritual leader. The focus of a spiritual leader is admonishment. Putting their thinking straight. Making clear, on one hand, the error of some ways, and on the other hand, the wisdom of the ways of God. Making and spelling out what those things are. Making them clear. I met someone this week who told me they thought the problem with the church and our society is that there's too much teaching. Too much doctrine. Too much focus on knowledge. And if we ever really want to be effective, what we've got to do is we've got to figure out a way to get, up, get past all that, get a community, you know, get down, get down to relationships. I thought, how do you have relationships without God's Word? I mean, I couldn't actually disagree more. I don't think the problem is too much teaching. The problem in every, virtually every experience I've had is too little teaching, too little doctrine, too little theology. I mean, there's the exaltation in in almost every church I grew up in, the exaltation of ignorance. People who were too theological were suspicious. They were dangerous. 
There isn't a problem of too much teaching. There's too little teaching. And when there's too little teaching, there's too little spiritual leadership. I mean, just, uh, just as a evidence of that, go check out virtually any church's website. Look at their doctrinal statement. What do you have in terms of doctrine? You have one, two, three sentences in many cases, or on the high end, maybe 10, 12 statements of what they believe. That's not a formula for too much doctrine. That's not the problem. The problem is that two little people are being admonished from God's Word. Two little people are being shown the errors of all the ways of the world and the wisdom of all the ways of God, whether it applies to your thinking, to your tongue, to your relationships, to your home, to your job, to your time, to your finances, to your hopes, to your dreams, whatever it might be that has something to do with your life, God's Word speaks to it. And so the last thing we need to do is jettison God's Word. The problem is somewhere along the way, people lack the confidence in the Word of God to make it the core component of all they do and all they teach. Or to oppose everything that stands or contradicts it. Or they lack the discernment to even clarify what those things are. But Paul says to them, he admonishes them because he's being a spiritual father. That's what they do. That's what fathers do. That's what spiritual leaders do. They impart information to change your thinking and to bring it in line. They're constantly challenging you to measure your thinking, to measure your thoughts, to measure your mind next to the Word of God, to make sure that you have a proper view of God, a proper view of His commands, a proper view of your circumstances, a proper view of your feelings, a proper view of your words, a proper view of your dreams, of your goals, a proper view of your finances, your relationships, your time, constantly measuring your mind against God's Word to see what is out of line and bring it back in line. That's what fathers do. That's, what, that's why when Deuteronomy talks about a, a father to his children in Deuteronomy 6, it says, look, when you rise up, when you sit down, when you go in, when you come out, when you're on the way, basically everywhere you're in life, all you're doing is teaching. Not all you're doing, but you're constantly teaching. Spiritual leadership involves teaching. And to denigrate or set it aside is to abdicate your role as a spiritual leader. To assume that somewhere along the way, you as a father, it's just your job to show up at work and bring them a paycheck and keep a roof over people's head, but you never engage in the teaching of your children. You have abdicated, abdicated your role as a spiritual leader. And a pastor who thinks that his job is to get his people in some feeling and some sense of community, but never bring them to the Word of God day after day and time after time and to measure and to weigh their thoughts against the Word of God and bring it back in line isn't a spiritual leader. They might be some slave, they might be some tutor, they might be some guy, but they're not a father. Paul brings up this issue of fatherhood because he had to admonish them. And that's what spiritual fathers do. Now this admonishing is done, of course, with a spirit of gentleness. It's not, as Paul says in verse 14, it's not to shame you. not what we're 
doing when we're teaching. In fact, this word is used in Ephesians 6, 4, speaking directly to fathers. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction, the nutheteo of the Lord. Same word. In other words, it's possible for a parent to correct their child in a way that would tear them down rather than build them up. In a way that would embitter them and drive them away. I mean, I've been with parents before and we're standing there and their child is standing there and as if that child is not even a human being, they just begin to unload on me about all the immaturities and all the deficiencies and all the failures of their child and I'm sitting there trying to listen but I can't help but notice the child right next to them literally melting in shame as if they had no feelings. People, parents constantly airing the weaknesses and airing the, the, the failings and the falterings of their child, whether it be in public or whether it be before their siblings or whether it be somewhere in the home. They're constantly bringing these things up and shaming their child and embittering their child and pushing their children away. Now Paul says, look, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not bringing things up. That's not my purpose. I don't want to shame you. I mean, you look in Scripture, you talk about admonishment, and you talk about correcting, and everywhere you see, it's to be something that's be done as privately as possible. You take your child, or you take the person you're admonishing to somewhere private, somewhere where people aren't listening. You deal with them gently. You first of all approach them with humility. You, you, you uh, address the logs that are in your own eye. You recognize that you have your own sin. You confess those things to him. All those things are the part and parcel of being a father and being a parent when you're speaking to your children or when you're speaking to anyone. Now, this isn't some arrogant person just trying to unload some correction on them. This is a father. And Paul wants to deal with them gently and lovingly like any faithful father would. Any faithful pastor would. It's not easy. That's why Paul tells the Thessalonians. He says, I, I request you, brothers, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. Your spiritual leaders, in other words. And, he says, who give you admonition. I mean, you just need to appreciate. It's not easy. It's not easy to be the one who always has to bring God's word to bear on a situation, to be the one who always has to be correcting, the one who always has to be addressing the error, the one who always has to be spelling out what God's word says or spelling out the foolishness of some way, the one who has to always bear the burden of doing that, but that's the father. You're the one who's around the dinner table bringing God's word. You're the one who's around the living room bringing God's word. You're the one who in, in personal conversation is having to bring people back to the wisdom of God's ways and it can be wearisome, sure. But you, you have to appreciate, he says, those who are laboring among you and bearing the burden of spiritual leadership. And this is how Paul defined his ministry. Colossians 1.28, he says, we, we uh, uh, admonish every man, teaching every man, that we might present every man complete in Christ. This is, how, this is what his ministry was in summary, he says. Every person, I'm admonishing them and teaching them to present them complete in Christ. In other words, Paul had no target audience. 
just drives me crazy. These churches that, that launch or, or these people that produce books and they tell you, look, the way for you to, the way for you to uh, have success is you've got to find some target audience. You're going to target the 20 to 30s or the 30 to 40s. You're going to target the, the up and coming and the yuppies. I still remember as a young man reading a book about ministry and they were talking about the kind of person that your church has to target. And they literally had a picture in the book of a guy with his cell phone on his hip and his cha- pager on his other hip and he had his khaki pants and he had all this stuff and they had point, you know, things pointing, pointing out how he looks and what he's like and they, they were basically saying, your church, if it's ever going to have explosive growth, it's going to happen when the person in the pew looks like the pastor and it's gonna, you've got to you know, find that person and target them. It's ridiculous stuff. Paul says, look, our job is every person we encounter... We admonish them and we teach them so that we can present them complete in Christ. Paul wasn't in the business of segregating out people within his congregation and identifying those who were maybe gave some acumen and, and, and showed some promise for, for, for study and he would give them extra benefit. No, he taught everybody. When the church gathered together, he taught he says in Acts 20, 31, this was his continual ministry night and day for three years while he was among the Ephesian elders, admonishing them and teaching them. This was a core component of his ministry, and it will be of every spiritual leader. They will be teachers. Not only that, there'll be examples. Spiritual leadership involves godly examples. Paul says in verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. His sincere love, his unique role as their spiritual father compels him to urge them to follow his conduct. And he's saying this all the time, by the way, over and over again. Be followers of me. Philippians 3.17, brothers, be followers together of me. 2 Thessalonians 3.9, we offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. I mean, he says it here in 1 Corinthians 4. He'll say it again over in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me. It's something eventually that every spiritual leader must be able to say. The writer of Hebrews urges the congregation, uh, the churches there that he's writing to, he says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. This is the mandate from God's word that you establish your lifestyle as a spiritual leader, as one which can be modeled or one that can be patterned after for those who are under your care. I remember reading a book by Elizabeth Elliot when I was a young college student and her saying that she, one of the dominant memories she has of her father is coming down the stairs every morning and seeing him wrapped up in a shawl, uh, kneeling before a chair praying. I mean, this is what you do as a father. You set an example And it's not just by what you say, it's by what you do. It's by how they see you live. 
It's by the way that you speak to your wife and the way you cherish her. It's by the way that you conduct your business and carry out your affairs, the way you do your job. It's by the way you handle your finances and the things that you cherish and love. All those things, you're setting the pace, you're setting the example. That's spiritual leadership. So Paul says, be imitators of me. The Philippians, he says, the things that you've heard and learned and received and seen in me. Practice these things. Leaders have to be able to say that. 1 Peter 5, Peter says that the, the elders are to serve as examples to the flock. 1 Timothy 4, he tells Timothy that he's to be an example to believers in word and in conduct, in love and spirit and faith and purity. I mean, even our Lord himself said in Luke 6.40 that everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. So you cannot separate out spiritual leadership from spiritual example. It is inseparable. And it's natural. And every spiritual leader and every father needs to be able to say to those who are under their care, do as I do. Follow my example. Be an imitator of me. Conduct yourself in my pattern. Be the kind of husband I am. Be the kind of worker I am. Be the kind of talker I am. The kind of person in prayer that I am. Be like me. I need to mention just briefly, by the way, Leadership doesn't always happen through positive examples. Sometimes it's negative, right? There are people masquerading as spiritual leadership whose lives discredit the work of God and bring disrepute on the, on the gospel of Christ. Their preoccupation is with other things they demonstrate in their attitudes and their ego and their lust and their argumentative spirit, their failure to care for the people under their charge, their indifference to the needs of others. They demonstrate the life that shouldn't be modeled. Or worse, by their theft and their lying, their embezzlement, their adulterous lifestyles. They lead, but in the wrong direction. That's why when you look into the Bible and you look for leaders and you look for qualifications, you come to 1 Timothy 3 or you come to Titus 1 and you have these lists that are predominantly character qualities. In fact, both lists sort of begin with a summary statement that an elder or a pastor must be above reproach. On in kaleo is the word. Literally means they can't be called in. They're not called in. You don't have to constantly be calling them in to line. You don't have to be constantly setting them down saying, now, you can't do that. No, they're to be blameless. They're to be above reproach. It's not that they're perfect. No one's perfect. But there is no glaring issue, some sin, some vice, some evil, some habit, some attitude They would subject them to accusation or the gospel of Christ to ridicule. 
There's an inseparable link between the character of a leader and the character of the people he leads. Now it's obvious here in 1 Corinthians 4 that Paul's emphasis is on both his personal conduct, the way that he was when he was among them, but even more on his teaching as he led his Christian life. Paul isn't present with them. He's writing a letter, obviously, and he still wants them to observe his conduct. He still expects them to imitate him. And in aid to this end, he tells them, I'm going to send you Timothy there in verse 17, and he's going to remind you of all my ways. In other words... Paul was not calling the Corinthians to mimic the individual personality characteristics of his life. The insignificant things, his facial expressions and his tone of voice, that, that, that is useless. What he wants them to mimic is all of those areas where he lives according to and applies the word of God. This isn't about having some cookie-cutter congregation that looks like you and acts like you and drives the same thing you drive and lives in the same neighborhood you live and roots for the same football team, though that's not always outside the <laughs> scope. But this is not about getting people to look just like you. It's getting them to look like Christ. In fact, when Paul repeats this over 1 Corinthians 11, he'll say, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. That's what it's about. Living such a life that you set the pace for others. You set the mark. Well, there's a third core component to spiritual leadership that Paul brings up here, and that's discipline. It's discipline. It's an obvious component for every faithful father and it'll be an obvious component for every faithful pastor. They will not allow their love and affection or more importantly, they won't, they won't allow their self-interest and their desire to protect their position to cause them to restrict their leadership just to teaching. Or even just to example. It'll involve discipline. In fact, the Bible couldn't be more clear on this. That if you don't have discipline, there's no relationship. What does it say over in Hebrews? If you're without discipline, you're not a son. If you're without discipline, you're an illegitimate child. Every father, it says, disciplines his child. And so Paul, Paul brings up the issue of discipline. He says in verse 18, Some are arrogant as though I'm not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. So here's Paul saying, look, I'm going to come. I'm going to come, and then down in verse 21, when I come, I'm going to come with what? A rod. I'm going to come with a rod. Or a spirit of gentleness, depending on how you respond. He was willing to come and enact discipline. These people had become arrogant and puffed up like too often we have to deal with in the lives of our own children. In this particular case, their arrogance centered around 
two things. Primarily the spiritual presumption that they could interact with those living in sinful lifestyles, that they could welcome them into their church and not be tainted. I mean, just look at verse 5, chapter 1, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. When it's actually reported, he says, among the church, that there was sexual immorality of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. Apparently someone's sleeping together with his stepmom. And he says what in verse 2? You are arrogant. You're arrogant. You ought rather to have mourned. So let the one who has done this be removed from among you. He's talking about discipline. And discipline involves the removal from among the church of those people who are unrepentant. The problem with these people is they become arrogant and thinking that they could just tolerate those kinds of folks in the church. Maybe they were boasting about how loving and how tolerant they were and how open-hearted they were and how they were going to you know, just you know, love people. In fact, down in verse 6 of chapter 5, he says their boasting isn't good. Don't you realize that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? They were boasting when they should have been mourning. They were arrogant, not realizing that they could be drawn in. I mean, we all feel this as parents, right? I mean, we're always saying to our children, look, if you're going to hang around that group of people, they're going to influence you and they're going to drag you down into a hole. We understand that innately as parents and then pastors who are godly pastors who are true spiritual leaders, they understand that. They understand that if a church tolerates someone living in unrepentant sin, that it will eventually, like a little bit of leaven in a lump of dough, it will permeate every person. The moral standards will be lowered across the board. And you say, well, it's not going to happen to me. You're arrogant. You're spiritually presumptuous. And your boasting isn't good. That's what happened to these people. In fact, back in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul talked about them boasting in men. Boasting in men. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 6. They were boasting, arrogant, puffed up, one towards another. Boasting in their wisdom, In other words, they probably were concerned more than anything with having the praise of men. And the last thing they wanted to do was to come across to come across narrow-minded, to come across mean-spirited, to come across whatever it might be. They were boasting, they were arrogant, and they were tolerating sin. Well, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, look, I'm going to come. I'm going to find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. They were going around talking. They were talking. You say, well, what was that all about? Well, I think it's the same thing back in chapter 2. The first five verses there, Paul makes the same contrast between talk or words on one hand and power on the other. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in what? In demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You know, there are so many who are building churches, who are building ministries on words. They're building ministries on words. They're building the kingdom with words. And they're respected and they're loved and they're boasting in their popularity and they're boasting in how everyone uh, just fawns all over them. They're just boasting and prideful and arrogant. And Paul says to them, Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the kingdom of God is not words, but power. It's the power of the gospel priest to transform a life so that your faith doesn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And when I come, I'm going to confront that. And when I come, I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to bring the rod, and I'm going to put these arrogant people out of the church. It's painful to do it. But it's what spiritual leadership does. It disciplines. It guards. It protects. It exposes. It puts people out of the church. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, look at Romans. The very last chapter, verse 16, just a few pages before, in verse 17, Paul's constantly admonishing people to do this. He says in verse 17 of Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught and avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites and smooth talk and flattery. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, you find another admonition from the Apostle Paul to this end. He says in verse 14 of that chapter, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them so that they can be put to shame. In other words, it had reached a point where things couldn't be dealt with privately and now it had to be dealt with publicly and they had to bear the brunt of the shame of their own rebellion. And he says, then there comes a point where you ostracize them, you have nothing to do with them, you put them out of the church and yet you still don't regard them as an enemy but as a brother. This is what you do in families. You love by discipline. Over in 1 Timothy, the next page over probably in your Bibles. 1 Timothy 1, verse 19, Paul talked about some who have made shipwreck of their own faith. 1 Timothy 1, 19. And among them, he says, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does that mean, hand them over to Satan? <coughs> He takes them outside the realm of God's church and he hands them out to the world. Hands them over to Satan. He puts them out of the church. He disciplines them. This is exactly, back over in 1 Corinthians 4, this is exactly what he gets to in chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, he wants them to take this sexually immoral person in their church who is unrepentant 
and he wants them to put him out of the church. He says in verse 4, When you're assembled together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with you in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit is saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It is redemptive, in other words. I mean, this is in the beginning of the process. This is the end. This is after months and maybe sometimes years of effort at reconciliation and calling people to repentance. But when finally they will not submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, spiritual leadership disciplines. It disciplines. And if it doesn't, it's not spiritual leadership. I mean, we know there's far too many fathers who abdicate their role in the home and think that they're just going to kind of, you know, bring home the paycheck and clean up the yard and watch their TV show and they think that they're a father. And they don't engage in the discipline of their children. They leave it all up to their wife or they leave it up to nobody and it brings what? Chaos into the home. An undisciplined child brings stress, it brings anxiety, it raises the blood pressure of everyone who's around them, screaming, the hollering, the uncontrolled behavior. It puts people on edge and then they begin to fight with one another and the whole harmony in the the community when the home breaks down. Well, what do you think happens in a church if undisciplined people are tolerated? So a spiritual leader understands the need for this. They understand their role. They understand that their role is to teach and admonish. They understand that their role is to set the pace by their example of the way they live, the way they pray, the way they seek the Lord, the way they speak, the way they love their family. And when necessary, their role is to bring the rod. Paul says, I'd rather not, like any father, he'd rather not, I'd rather come to you in gentleness. But if necessary, if you don't deal with this before I arrive, I'll do what's necessary. I'll do what's necessary. These are spiritual leaders. And you can have lots of tutors, you can have lots of guides, you can have lots of people who are going to beat you into submission or or corral you into some pathway or coax you along with mere words. But a spiritual father is rare. A spiritual shepherd is a precious thing. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful today that we have in you the perfect model of a father, the perfect model of a shepherd. It is you who so lovingly teach us. It is you who so graciously have set the pace, your godliness, your holiness, your character. It is you, Lord, who lovingly disciplines us. And we're not to resent you for it but to recognize it as an action of your love. Lord, I pray that you would give us fathers in this church, establishing homes with this kind of spiritual leadership. And I pray that you'd give us leaders in the church who are faithful spiritual fathers over us.
teaching us, setting a challenging example for us, correcting us and disciplining us when necessary. Lord, we know it's necessary because we've seen the destructive power of sin. We know it's necessary because your word calls us to it. But may you do it as we submit ourselves to you. May you raise up these kinds of men among us for your own namesake and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.